0: We're up to number three in our series on the Spirit of Holiness. How we to understand who the Spirit is and how He works in and amongst us as His people. Last week we heard about the Spirit being poured out on all flesh on the day of Pentecost, anointing all people, not just a particular group, but all of God's people are enabled by the Spirit. To speak the word of God, we are members of the new prophetic community. That wasn't the first time that uh, we see the the Spirit being given or poured out. This is John chapter twenty. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. They are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from anyone, it is withheld. Some Bible scholars call this John's Pentecost because they think it's John's alternative version of what we saw last week on the day of Pentecost. Or maybe they think that the account of Pentecost in Acts is Luke's rewriting of this account But there's actually no problem with seeing these two events as actually happening, but serving two different purposes. Now, this is one of the uh, early appearances of Jesus, the risen Jesus, to his disciples. Uh, It's still on the Sunday that he came back from the dead. And depending on how we harmonise the different Gospel accounts, it's either the fifth or the sixth time that he's appeared to some or all of the disciples. Uh, At this time it was all except for Judas because he had died and Thomas, who wasn't there at the time. Now only a fraction of Jesus' resurrection appearances are recorded. Uh, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 that over 500 people saw him alive. So if we had all of those 500 appearances recorded, New Testament would be a lot thicker than it is. Luke tells us in Acts 1 that Jesus spent a good part of the next 40 days teaching the 11 apostles about the Kingdom of God and then he ascended to heaven 10 days before the day of Pentecost. Here's what Luke says. he, by implication, he continues to do in the book of Acts. These 40 days would have been like a final intensive in which all that he had taught them over the last three years was all put into place now in light of his death and his resurrection. This would have been... The time when everything just began to gel for them. But notice that it wasn't just Jesus who was teaching them in this time. We're told it it was through the Holy Spirit that Jesus gave His commands. See that the disciples needed the work of the Holy Spirit in their hearts and minds in order to comprehend all that Jesus was saying. And that's what Jesus was indicating when he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Good thing it wasn't today you'd get in trouble. Oh, you might spread the coronavirus if you breathe on people. But it it would have been quite a, maybe to us, an unusual experience for Jesus to actually breathe on them like that. But he was making a point. The word for breath in the Greek here is the same as what's used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament when God breathed into Adam's nostrils and he became a living creature. What Jesus is indicating here is this is the beginning of a new humanity. Starting with this a little group of fearful men huddled in their locked room, hiding from the authorities. This new humanity will not only know the, the life that the spirit gives as he gave to Adam, but also a renewed commission. Adam received the commission, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it and rule over it. That creational mandate commission is reconfigured in the New Testament. Jesus says, as the Father sent me, now I send you. In Matthew he says, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. They're called to participate in the same mission that he has with the Father. Now, verse 23. Three here, isn't saying that they have some kind of spiritual power over people to determine whether they can be forgiven or not. This is in the context of them being sent out as they go in the power of the Holy Spirit, as they proclaim the Gospel, they go out proclaiming the good news, the good news of the forgiveness of sins. So anyone, as they hear this proclamation of the Apostles, anyone who receives the Gospel will know this forgiveness of sins. Anyone who rejects the Gospel won't know forgiveness. They'll remain in their sins under God's wrath. It's both a privilege and a solemn responsibility to proclaim the Gospel. We... We know the joy of seeing people set free from their slavery to sin as they hear the message from our lips, as God includes us in his work of saving them. But there's also a sense of urgency and responsibility, a solemn responsibility to answer the command to tell the gospel. If we withhold the gospel from people, we're withholding forgiveness. They won't know the freedom and the joy that we have in Christ. The Gospel doesn't automatically download into people's minds apart from the preaching of the Gospel. Romans 10 tells us, Faith comes by hearing the word of Christ and people won't hear the word of Christ unless it's preached to them. So who are we to withhold the forgiveness of sins from people by shrinking back instead of boldly stepping forward and prophetically speaking God's word of the gospel to them. So this 40 day period was Jesus preparing his disciples in the power of the Holy Spirit so that they would be ready for the day when the Spirit would propel them out to proclaim this gospel to the ends of the earth. So the day of Pentecost was when everything that had been heard in private for three years and then this 40-day period now went public. There were the physical signs of the tongues of fire. They're speaking in other languages. They were all designed to be signs to the people of Israel that The day has finally come. The prophecy of Joel when the Lord would pour out his spirit on all people is here. Now, the timing of this happening on the day of Pentecost was very deliberate in God's plan. Pentecost was a Jewish festival and it was a celebration of the bringing in of the harvest. Fifty days earlier... Coinciding with Passover, they had celebrated the festival of first fruits, the beginning of the harvest. That's why Jesus is called in his resurrection the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So Jesus dies and is raised from life on the first fruits, the beginning of the harvest. And at Pentecost, the Spirit is poured out and there's a great bringing in of the harvest. Over 3,000 people in that one day hear the Gospel and believe. And that harvest continues right up to today. The Spirit is going out into the world, sent by the Father and the Son, and as He does, He takes hold of us and He fills us with power. He enables us to speak the Word with prophetic authority. And through this prophetic ministry that we have as his people, he continues to gather in those that he's chosen from before the foundation of the world. In our reading this morning we heard about this ministry of the Holy Spirit in the world. When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of Truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. The Spirit here is called the Helper, that's the ESV. It's the uh, King James Version that has the well-known word comforter, as in the hymn that we'll sing after this. In the NIV it's advocate, And other translations use counsellor. What is it? Well, it's kind of all of those things bound together, but probably the NIV is the best translation, advocate. The Greek word was commonly used in a legal context. It's someone who represents me in court. It literally means one who is called alongside to be with me, to be alongside me as I go through whatever I'm going through. And given here in this context of persecution, they're given an assurance. As they bear witness to Jesus, the Spirit is alongside them and he is bearing witness to Jesus. They don't need to have confidence in themselves to be witnesses, because it's the Spirit doing the work. They simply need to keep in step with him. What is the work that the Spirit does? Well, there's the context there, sorry, of the persecution that they will face in which they need to know this empowering, enabling presence of the Spirit alongside them. What's the work that the Spirit does as the Gospels proclaimed in the world? Well, we see that in verses 8 to 11. When he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you'll see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. We see the, uh, the legal language being used here again when we're told that the Spirit will convict the world. That's a, a legal term. His testimony to Jesus through us will be like a lawyer in a court presenting their case. Now, this work of conviction has an objective aspect and a subjective aspect to it. What I mean by objective is it's a declaration of the truth. He is the spirit of truth, the declaration of the facts. They're true regardless of whether people believe them or not, whether people feel that they're true, whether they feel the weight of them or not. If a criminal in court is found guilty, then they're guilty. Whether they think they're guilty, whether they feel guilty or not, the pronouncement of the court is the evidence, the proof says you're guilty. That's the conviction. But what I mean by subjective is that this, this objective declaration of the truth, of the facts, is designed to impress upon the person the reality of their guilt to see the consequences of what they've done, to, to feel guilty, to acknowledge their guilt, to repent and to seek some kind of reparation or atonement for what they've done. If you think about it, this kind of double barreled aspect of conviction, objective and subjective, is reflected in our justice system. Uh, our justice system is the way it is because of the influence of Christian values that have been in our society for so long. Objectively, we seek to bring justice when a person commits a crime. We punish them with jail or fine or community service. That's the objective part. The sentence must be served regardless of whether the person feels guilty or not but we also want to see that person changed, reformed. And so the punishment that we give them, we see this is, we hope, a means to change them so that after they've paid the penalty, they will enter society again, possibly as a better person than they were before because the result of their conviction has brought a conviction in their heart. They've turned from their crime. They want to be a law-abiding citizen again. Well, at least in theory, that's the way it's supposed to work in our justice system. But the Spirit's work of convicting the world is with the goal of declaring the truth but also calling people to repentance and faith, to know this forgiveness of sins. Remember... This world is the world that God so loved he sent his only Son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. This world is the world into which God sent his Son not to condemn it but so that the world might be saved through him. So this salvation achieved by the Son is given to people in the world by the Spirit as he convicts them of sin, righteousness and judgment. So let's look at what each of these three mean. Firstly, Jesus says the world will be convicted of sin because they do not believe in me. At the heart of all sin sits unbelief, lack of faith. Hebrews 11 tells us, "'Without faith it's impossible to please God.'" Because we must believe not only that God exists, but also that he is the God who rewards those who seek him. A God who wants to be in relationship with people. So, if you don't have faith, if you refuse to believe, that's the heart of all sin. Now, the Old Testament people demonstrated their unbelief through idolatry. They refused to look to the Lord alone for their salvation. Instead, they turned aside, as we heard in the Psalm 106, they turned aside to worship other gods, gods who demanded things like, sacrifice your children to me. See, it was a lack of faith in the Lord that just opened them up then to place their faith in these other gods and to do unthinkable things. In the New Testament times, including today, because we are in the New Testament time, unbelief is demonstrated by refusing to look to Jesus as our only salvation. We think that we can find salvation somewhere else or in someone or something else. And often that something or someone else is ourselves. We think we can justify ourselves ourselves by what we do. So if you've come to see that you are a sinner, not just in breaking the rules, but in the unbelief, the idolatry of our hearts, a hostility towards God, then that's only because the Holy Spirit has convicted you of sin. It's the Spirit who shows us our utter hopelessness and helplessness as we sink in sin's mire, unable to pull ourselves out by our own shoelaces. He impresses on us the wrath that we deserve and he shows us our desperate need for mercy. So if you know you're a sinner, it's because the Holy Spirit has shown you. Secondly, Jesus says the world will be convicted of righteousness because I go to the Father. Jesus uses this phrase to refer to what is about to happen to him after he's finished speaking. The path he will take, with the ultimate goal being in the presence of the Father, but it's a path that goes through the garden, where he prays with great grief, Father, not my will but your will be done. To the cross, where he cries out, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. To the tomb and the resurrection, where he says to Mary, I am ascending to my Father and your Father. And then to his ascension, where he's seated at the right hand of the Father. He's completed his mission. And from there he pours out the Holy Spirit. So the righteousness that the Spirit convicts the world of is the righteousness of Christ. His perfect obedience to the Father. His completion of all that the Father sent him to do. But not only his righteousness, it's his righteousness which he now gives as a gift to all who come to him in faith. He's the righteous one. He shows us the perfect standard of righteousness that's required for anyone to come into the kingdom of God, but he's also the justifier. In the Greek, it's the same word used differently, righteous and justify. He's the justifier who gives this perfect status of righteousness when he justifies sinners by grace through faith. So, if you know not only that you're a sinner, but you know that Jesus died for you and you know that there's no condemnation in him, if you know that you stand without blemish in him before the Father, that's only because the Spirit has convicted you of righteousness. The righteousness that only Jesus, by his death and resurrection, can give you. Thirdly, Jesus says the world will be convicted of judgment because the ruler of the world is judged. The cross of Jesus to an outsider would have appeared to be the triumph of evil over righteousness. This righteous one was crucified in weakness and humiliation. But in fact, the cross was the defeat of evil. It was the defeat of death. It was the defeat of the devil. The devil's called the accuser because he stands before God and he tries to discredit God by discrediting his people. He points out all of our sin. He tempts us as he tempted Jesus in the wilderness. He tempts us to look everywhere to God for our salvation. But because Jesus bore all of our sin, all of our unbelief in the cross, the devil has no more weapon against us or against God. He can't accuse us of sin that's being atoned for. He has no grounds for saying God is unjust or God is unloving because in the cross, the Father's perfect love and justice came together in perfect unity. He judged our sin and he justified us. So the devil's robbed of his power. Everything that he did in Eden to lead Adam and Eve into sin has been undone. His head has been crushed by the seed of Eve. Jesus' victory over the devil means victory over sin and death. And so instead of spiralling downwards into decay and destruction, now the whole creation is on an upward path. It's on track, heading towards the day when all things in heaven and earth will be made new. This judgment of the devil means that Jesus stands as ruler and judge of the world. We can be confident that the world's destiny is in his hands. He will bring everything to its goal. And the day of judgment will be the day when his glory and majesty as king and as judge will be unveiled. Every eye will see him. Those who rejected him, those who have resisted the convicting work of the Spirit will mourn, but those of us whose hope is in him will rejoice. So, if you are able to not only know that you're a sinner, but Also that Jesus died for you and you now stand before the Father clothed in his perfect righteousness. But not only that, you're able to look forward to the day of judgement. When Jesus will appear, when we will see him face to face. And if as a result you're able now to live in this life with a hope infused love, if you know in your heart a yearning to see Jesus face to face, to be part of that renewal of all things, that's only because the Holy Spirit has convicted you of judgment. Sin, righteousness and judgment, that's the gospel. That's the gospel we are called to believe and to proclaim. If you've heard that this morning, and it's actually the first time it's really just fallen into place for you as it did for the disciples in those 40 days with Jesus. It's not because I've presented it well. It's because the Holy Spirit's at work in your heart, convicting you of those things and calling you to come and put your faith in Jesus. See what verses. 13 and 14 say, When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The things that are to come, again in this context of Jesus speaking, other things that took place after Jesus had finished speaking, his betrayal, his death, his resurrection, his exaltation as Lord and Christ and judge of all and as the one who now pours out the Spirit. The Spirit has taken all that belongs to Jesus and he's declared it to us. And he says, "Just, just believe. He gives us the power to believe and receive all of that. this is the work that the Spirit's doing in the world means we can step out in confidence because he's already doing it. He's already working in the world, preparing people's hearts so that when they hear the wonderful news of the Gospel, he's done that work already to make them open, to receive it, to believe it. We have a young man who's just started coming to the group at Flinders. It's only been one week. Um, he, his first words to us, or to one of our workers when they met him, was, um, yeah, I've only been religious for a couple of weeks. Started going to a local church youth group. And then this week he came along to a Bible talk and he said, oh, uh, two days ago it was my first time I've ever been to church. Uh, but he's also started reading the Bible. I think he's up to Ecclesiastes. And uh, I said, you, you may have read more of the Bible than many Christians, I think. Uh, but there's just this wonderful op- openness there. This this young man who has no church background, who doesn't know anything about the Bible, something's happening in his heart, and it's the Holy Spirit convicting him of these things. And as he continues to read God's Word, as he continues to meet with Christians, uh, we just we know that God's going to do the work in him. Do you see the Trinitarian action in this? The Spirit takes that which is the Son's and he makes it known to us. But what belongs to the Son? I think I've got it. No, I haven't. I haven't got the following verses there. Uh, Jesus said, all that I have is the Father's. That's why I said, he will take from what is mine and make it known to you. So what belongs to the Son? Only that which has been given to him by the Father. So there's this threefold work that we saw, if you remember, two weeks ago at the very beginning, where the work of the Father, Son and Spirit complement Each other. The Father initiates. He's the one who foreknows us and chooses us before the foundation of the world. But He chooses us in Christ. He determines that our adoption into His family will be through the giving of His only begotten Son. And so He sends the Son into the world, gives him all that He needs to fulfil that plan the anointing of the Holy Spirit, so that the Son may be the one who mediates between the Father and humanity. And so now the Spirit takes all that Jesus is and does and he applies it to us. So that as he brings us to the Son, he also is bringing us to the Father. We share in Jesus' Sonship with the Father. We cry both, Jesus is Lord and Abba, Father. So the Spirit brings the work of salvation to completion in us. Like I said, this should give us great confidence. He who began a good work in us will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ, Philippians 1.6. The Gospel we have is a full Gospel. It's a complete Gospel. It's a Gospel of Father, Son and Spirit. It's a Gospel that the Spirit empowers us in its proclamation. It's only because the Spirit is at work that uh, we can say the Gospel is the power of God to save all who believe. That means you. It means me. It means anyone with whom we share this Wonderful good news. Let's pray. Father, thank you for all that you have done in sending your Son and in sending your Spirit for us. Thank you that the Spirit is at work in the world, bringing your people in. Thank you that he did that work in us to draw us to see Jesus And to trust Him. Father, we pray that we as a church and we as individual people in our day to day lives might know this empowerment and boldness and confidence in the Spirit. Holy Spirit, we ask that You will fill us, that You will give us the words of the Father as we speak to one another, as we speak to our neighbours and our families and our friends. We acknowledge that we cannot do a thing unless you are in us and you are empowering us and speaking through us. We thank you, Holy Spirit, that you take all that belongs to Jesus the Son and bring it to us and declares it to us and in doing so you bring us to the Father. And it's only by your power, your enabling that we can call out Abba Father and know that we are children of God. So give us that confidence, give us that power, give us that comfort to know that you are in us and you will never leave us or forsake us. In Jesus' name. Amen. To stand and sing our final song, O oh God, the Holy Spirit.